You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. Um, My name is Eric Bonkowski. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And I wanted to start this afternoon by uh, giving a quick update related to last week's sermon. Um, I know I I almost came up here and led us in the doxology because I demonstrated myself to be such a a proficient singer last week. And um, I I know some of you have been wondering, I have signed a record deal. So... Um, Look for that later on this year coming out on Spotify or wherever you get your music. Um, I also wanted to give a a little update. I kind of issued a challenge to everyone about um, names for Christian acapella groups, and the response was underwhelming. Um, (laughs) That's okay. I mean, I thought thought there were some some obvious choices, you know, kind of like the generic grace notes. It could be the grace notes or... You know, just like vaguely, vaguely religious, uh, kindred spirit, something like that. Or, um, but the, the winner, I'm happy to announce the winner. And this is kind of a, a niche uh, acapella group, but this would be like a tonal depravity. <laughs> yeah, you can thank Ben McKinnon for that, uh, everybody. So. <laughs> tonal depravity. There you have it. Um, so I, I, I kind of was, uh, I was sharing about acapella groups and, and I was singing last week because of this song that uh, overlaps with this sermon series that we started a week ago. And it's a sermon series entitled, Who Do You Say That I Am? And it's focused on the person of Jesus and specifically the person of Jesus as he's revealed to us in uh, chapters 7 through 9 of Luke's Gospel. We're going to spend the next several months um, taking a close look at who Jesus is. And, and that's a primary question for all of us, certainly for Christians, but I think it's a primary question for all humans. Who is Jesus? And, and there's a second question that goes along right with that. How do we respond to who Jesus is? And, and those two questions are really going to frame this series. And by looking closely at these stories from Luke's gospel, we have a chance to see who Jesus is. And I think it's so important to us because, you know what, many of us have um, concluded or we've gotten to the point as we've walked through life that, um, first of all, God doesn't really know what's going on. God God probably doesn't really know what's going on in my life. We we say that or we think that at times. And, And we also say, God doesn't really care about what's going on in my life. And then finally, I think we wonder, even if he did see, even if he did care, could he do anything about it? And and part of why it's so important that we look at who Jesus is, is we answer those questions that haunt our hearts, that linger in our minds over and over again. 
And, uh, you know, someone asked me recently, someone was saying, gosh, I've been, been reading the, the Bible and it's, it, it hasn't really come to life for me. Um, I'm not getting a whole lot out of it. What do you do in times like that? And I said right off the bat that the thing that helps me in those moments is by reading books by uh, other people who have looked closely at Jesus. And as, as they think and as they write about looking closely at Jesus, that helps me to see Jesus in fresh ways. I think many of us had this experience uh, within the last year or two with the book Gentle and Lowly. That's what Dane Ortland does in that book. And there's another one that I've been thinking about this week, and it's an older book. It's from 2001. It's called Love Walked Among Us. And I remember reading that with a friend when it first came out, uh, back when I lived in Pennsylvania, and it changed the way that I thought about Jesus. Uh, so that can be a resource for you. If, if reading the Bible itself doesn't bring Jesus alive, find other resources that give you a new look into who he is. But this afternoon, let's look together now at uh, Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 11 and following, 11 through 17. Here's what it says. This is God's word for us. It says, Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went to a town called Nain, And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please please pray with me. Father, we confess that uh, we all came into this room this afternoon feeling different things, wondering different things about you, maybe needing different things from you, needing to hear different things. And there's no way that any of us could meet the needs of each person, see the needs of each person. But we believe that you, God, omniscient and omnipotent, you can. So now through your word, would you, by your spirit, apply it to each of us. The same truth, refracted to meet each one of us wherever we come from. We ask that you would do this by your grace, for your glory, and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to talk about this afternoon and what I think we see here in Luke chapter 7 is that Jesus looks, feels, and acts. And this is a kind of a model that comes right out of of that book that I mentioned earlier, Love Walked Among Us. The author Paul Miller says that again and again as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus looks, he feels, and he acts. Look again at verse 13. It says this, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. We see that the three parts of what Jesus does in that single verse, verse 13. 
And what I want us to do as we think about those three things briefly this afternoon is both see them in the passage, but then also see how Jesus does this writ large in his whole ministry. So it's not just what he does for this widow, but it's also what he does for all people. It's what he does for the world through his death and through his resurrection. So the first thing is that Jesus looks. It says he saw her. It's such a simple phrase, and we would quickly read past it, wouldn't we? It's just moving the story along. But we, we shouldn't take it for granted. We shouldn't skip over it. Because the scene here is one of chaos, really. There are two big crowds that are meeting. It's Jesus and his entourage as they come down from Capernaum. It's hundreds of people. And they are headed to this small town of Nain. And right as they're arriving on the outskirts of town, there's this other crowd that is leaving Nain. And it's a funeral procession. And funerals in the ancient Near East were big deals. There would have been a number of people mourning and weeping and crying out. Uh, maybe imagine uh, a funeral procession like they have in New Orleans with a, with, a, with a band and with people singing and a lot of uh, crowds of people. It's likely that this funeral took place on the very day that this young man died. The, uh, the, the, the rule said you're not to keep a corpse in the house overnight. So it would have been full and raw with emotion as well. And uh, it wouldn't have been a, a closed uh, coffin like we're used to. It would have been uh, the corpse carried out on a platform, covered over with a sheet. And the, the mom wailing, mourning, crying. Because we're told a couple of details about her, aren't we? That she's lost her son, obviously. But she's also a widow. She's a widow... And she's lost her only son. You know, we don't have a word in the English language for that type of person. Someone, a parent who has lost a child. But she would have been carrying all this weight of her grief and more than that too. Because it's likely that the people in the town would have figured that she was cursed for some reason. To lose both her husband and then her son. God must have it out for her unimaginable depths of grief. And so these two crowds are meeting. Jesus' crowd probably bigger than the crowd uh, attached to the funeral procession. And you would think that Jesus could just go about his business, continue to head wherever it is he's heading. But in that moment of chaos, with crowds all around, we're told he saw her. He saw her. He saw this widow in her pain, in her grief. And that makes all the difference in the story. That's where it starts. Jesus looks. Jesus sees. And what is the incarnation of God in the form of Jesus Christ if not that truth written for all of humanity? That Jesus sees you in your weakness. Jesus sees you in your pain. Jesus knows every temptation that faces you. What is true for the widow of Nain is true for us as well, that Jesus looks. He sees. It doesn't stop there. 
The next phrase is that he had compassion on her. Jesus also feels. It starts with his eyes, but it gets down to the level of his heart very quickly. The Greek word here is splagnizomai. It's a common word in the New Testament, and it's also common in Christian tattoos. It is a good word, maybe overplayed in the Christian tattoo market, but it's a word that literally means uh, that you feel with your guts, you feel with your bowels, because the seed of emotions in the ancient Near East wasn't the heart as we talk about, but it was the guts. So he feels, it's not just this cursory feeling, it's deep down. His heart broke for this widow of name. His heart went out to her, we might say. Jesus feels to the depth of who he is. How do you think that she knew that Jesus felt compassion on her? How do you think the crowds knew in this moment that he saw her and that he felt compassion? I've talked about this before. They probably saw it in his eyes. They saw it in his eyes, the ways that he looked at her. You know people like this. Hopefully you're lucky enough to have people like this in your life. People who see at a deep level. Those people who say, you haven't been sleeping very well, have you? Or they ask, what's going on? I can see that there's something going on in your life. It's a look that also feels compassion. And friends, Jesus does that for you and me. Again, it's part of the incarnation. It's, it's the lesson that we all learned by reading Gentle and Lowly last Advent, right? That the heart of God, as we see it in Jesus Christ, breaks for sufferers and sinners like you and me. God's heart is filled with compassion. He's not some impassable, aloof God in the sky. He has come down and knows our pain. Jesus looks and Jesus feels, but the story continues. And very importantly, we also see that Jesus acts. Verse 13 ends, it says, He said to her, do not weep. And at first, when you hear that, maybe as I read it earlier, uh, it, it can be a little bit jarring. Maybe you felt uh, like it was, uh, it was wrong. It's the wrong reaction. It, it's sort of an affront to our contemporary psychology that would never say, do not weep. Let it out. Let your emotions out. But here, this is the outcome. This is the action of Jesus' compassion. Because of two things. One, the authority that he holds in and of himself and the hope that he knows is coming based on what he will do. And so him saying do not weep is not cheap here. It is both powerful and hopeful. Maybe the closest uh, comparison is when a, when a child is hurt and crying in a mess and the parent picks that child up in her arms and shushes the child and says, shh, shh. Don't cry. It's going to be okay. Because there's power in that embrace. And there's knowledge of the future. There's control and there's hope. And that's what Jesus offers to the widow of Nain. But he doesn't just say, do not weep. That's not where his action stops. His action unfolds. Even in this passage. 
based on what Jesus will do. What he will do for this man who has died and what he will do for all of us who are dead in our sins. So what does Jesus do? His real act here, after he's looked and after he's felt compassion, is to move towards the the corpse. And he goes right up and it says that he he touches the beer. He, He touches this panel that the corpse is being led out on. Why does that matter? Well, the Old Testament tells us that Jesus is crossing boundaries here. He's crossing a religious boundary because in his act of touching that, he becomes unclean for seven days. But he doesn't care because compassion is compelling him to act. Do you notice that Jesus moved towards death? We run away from it. We're made uncomfortable by it, but Jesus presses right into it. He's not scared off about the the dead and dying places in our life. He moves towards them. He touches them. And then he says, as a man of authority, child, I say to you, arise. And there are echoes here of uh, the passage that Brianne read for us this afternoon from 1 Kings where the prophet Elijah in a similar situation, a a widow whose son has died, and Elijah goes up and heals it. And Luke wants us to see that intentionally. He's saying that one greater than Elijah is now here. You've heard about the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus is even greater than them. Because for Elijah, he had to lie down on top of this man and and, uh, repeat something three times and kind of this magical incantation. But for Jesus, it's the very word of his mouth. I say to you, arise, and death flees. But notice, too, that Jesus' action is not complete there, right? His final step is to take the son. I imagine him leading him by the hand and hands him back to his mother. Because his work is not just dealing with the dead corpse, but dealing with the as-good-as-dead mother whose prospects and hope had died alongside him. You see, Jesus brings life, he brings hope, he restores. And again, what I want you not to miss is that even as Jesus does this in this isolated instance on the outskirts of Nain, he has done this for us. He has done this in history through his life and his death. This woman was cursed because death was in her life. Well, Jesus became the cursed one for you and for me who were dead in our sins. And he says now by the power of his resurrection spirit, he says to us, arise. Do not let your sin and the death it deserves hold you down because I have died for you and I have risen again. He has acted in history for us because he sees us because he loves us this is who Jesus is and Luke wants us to be very clear about that who is Jesus he looks he feels he acts so we get now to the second question and that frames this series right what is our response to who Jesus is I asked this question at our staff meeting on Monday and Meg without missing a beat said well we look we feel and we act. And I said, well, that would make for an elegant sermon. 
And she's absolutely right, of course. It's right here in the passage. Our response mirrors Jesus. The first response is that we look, we see, we see Jesus for who he really is. And, and that's what's going on here as they, their minds call back to Elijah. But they're saying there's a great prophet that's risen among us. They're struggling to see who this man is because he's different from all the other traveling rabbis who've passed through name. And here's the challenge of response for us. Will we truly see Jesus? You know, it's so easy for us to see a caricature of Jesus. To kind of see the, the, uh, the blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus of a children's Bible. Not the real Jesus of the Word of God. And, and I say this even uh, to some of you who've maybe been around church your whole life. Maybe you've been coming to City Church for a decade. There's a chance that you haven't really seen the real Jesus. The Jesus who looks and feels and acts on your behalf. I think sometimes we can be around Jesus, but our eyes are blinded to him. The example that comes to mind for me is, uh, you, you know, when you, you go to uh, some beautiful tourist attraction. Say you're at the Grand Canyon, and there's so many people who are standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, but they don't see the Grand Canyon because they're too busy taking a picture with their iPhone, or better yet, their iPad, right? Right, the, the Grand Canyon is arrayed in front of them, but they miss it because they're playing with their phones. Is it the same for us when it comes to Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you taken a look at him? Because here's what's so important about this. this. Our response of looking, feeling, and acting, it is how we respond to Jesus, first of all. But then, as we do that, it also becomes our response to other people. It's our response to the world. I started reading Andy Crouch's new book. And, and so far, it's, it's really good. And he has this great uh, illustration in that book that proves this point. He, had, uh, he, he was flying back from a conference where he was talking a lot about Jesus and he had spent time thinking deeply about who Jesus was and he was waiting for his flight in O'Hare, uh, Chicago airport. He had two hours to kill and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I haven't had exercise in three days. I'm going to walk the terminals. I'm going to walk the concourses. But he said, as I walk, I'm going to try to truly look at every person I see. He started walking on these concourses and he looked at people. He tried not to do it in a creepy way. But he looked at people and he said as he passed every single one, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. He said it was one of the most moving moments of his life because he saw people. We live our whole lives around people, but do we really see them? We, if you're a Christian, you live your whole life around Jesus, but have you really looked at him? Look. The, the second response, of course, is to feel. And we see this in the passage. It says in verse 16 that fear seized them all. Well, what about you? As you look at Jesus, do you feel anything? Does it even register you know, we, we hear this word fear, and I think uh, immediately we think of being scared or being frightened. I think in this context, and often in the Bible, the word fear has more to do with awe. It's an experience that drops your mouth open. 
You can't believe it. It's the experience of seeing Jesus, seeing the depths of his mercy, seeing the extent of his lavish love poured out for us. And saying, how great thou art. My God, how great thou art. That's the feeling. This awe, this wonder at the bigness of God and the bigness of his love for us. We have another clue in this passage of how they felt in response to seeing Jesus, many of them for the first time. It says in verse 16 that fear seized them. They glorified God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So what did they feel as they looked at Jesus? They felt as though God had visited them. Have you ever had that experience of a visit from someone or something that you feel in your bones? You know, the example that came to mind for me uh, is a little bit of a tell about who I am, but it was the, it was the big bike race in 2015. It visited Richmond. Professional cyclists were here. And I still remember what it felt like to stand on the sideline and see the peloton whoosh past. For me, I remember that, the power of that event happening here. But, but for you, maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a person who showed up in your life with so much power and so much love that you remember what it felt like when they visited you, when they came to the hospital room, when they came to your home. When you got bad news and they showed up and you remember what that visit felt like. The, the Greek word here that's used in this verse is episkopos. And it's derived from two separate words, epi, which is just an intensifier. It kind of adds force. And skopos, now that word you may recognize, like from periscope or microscope, it means to see. So when they say God had visited them, what they're literally saying is that we have been looked at intently. I love that. I love that. That's what it felt like after Jesus had been among them. They say, God has looked at us intently. Jesus has seen us to the core. Have you ever felt that? You see, that's what reading these stories and understanding the heart of Jesus will do for us. That we will believe, maybe for the first time, that we have been seen. I feel as though God has looked at me. Another thing Crouch says in this book is that we're all born with that as this basic human longing. That every baby is born into the world and in their first days and weeks of life, they're looking around. They can only see maybe 18 inches in front of their face. But what are they looking for? They're looking for a set of eyes to look back at them. Friends, spiritually, you and I are doing the exact same thing. And God, in Christ, has looked intently at you. How do we respond? Well, the response, of course, is feeling that from Jesus, and then it becomes our response to look at other people with that same intent. 
to walk into a room and to, to sweep the corners of that room looking for the person who needs to be looked at. Our response is to look at Jesus, is to feel amazement at his love and amazement at the fact that he turns his attention to us. And then finally, our response is to act. And again, we see that in the passage in the very last verse. Verse 16, first, I already read, it says that they glorified God. Well, what is that? What's that response? That's worship, right? That's the the jaw-dropping, heartfelt response to Jesus and his love and his care. And worship, not just here on Sunday afternoons, but worship more in the ways that Sean was talking about, right? Everyday doxologists, what does that mean? That means everyday worship. That we would worship Jesus through the way that we live in our families and through the ways we live at our schools and through the ways we live at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. There's an opportunity to respond to the compassion and love of Jesus in all of those places, broadly speaking. But there's another response that's hinted at in this passage. You see verse 17, it says this, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What is that? That's evangelism. That's simple evangelism. The report spread around. They uh, responded by looking at Jesus, seeing who he truly was, feeling compassion, maybe for the first time, and then talking about it, telling others, let me tell you about this great man who knows everything about me, who raised a dead man to new life. It's evangelism. How do you respond to looking at Jesus and feeling his love poured out on you? We're called to respond by both proclaiming but also embodying who Jesus is. And that embodying part becomes important because our evangelism, too often we think it's just our words, right? It is what you say, but it's also how you live, how you live towards other people. And it's why I've been stressing the two sides of this, that our response has to do with how we look, feel, and act towards Jesus, and it's how we look, feel, and act towards others. Because as you go from here into the surrounding country, The only way that a lot of people are going to experience Christ is through you. How you look at them, how you feel towards them, how you act towards them. It's our response. Because Jesus has done all of this for us. Are you willing to cross boundaries? Are you willing to pay the cost of compassion? Right, Because that's the thing in this story. There was a, a social cost and a religious cost for Jesus to touch the dead man. He crossed those boundaries and he paid the cost anyway. What about you? Is your compassion ever costly? What would that look like? You know, the more I think about it, the, the more I see this uh, event in Jesus' life as a real companion piece to what I talked about last week which was establishing his authority. Here's a man of great authority, a generous authority, and he stewarded that authority well. And what we see with the widow of Nain is is just another example of that. And a friend of mine reminded me last week of a, a story he told me that I think encapsulates our response so well. What our response should be, especially our response to other people based 
on how Jesus has loved us. This story comes from a friend of mine who was in the military. He was an officer, and he was in charge of leading a group of men through training exercises. And as is in most uh, battalions or, or groups of soldiers, there's always a dud or two in the mix. And he was telling me about uh, how this one soldier had a reputation for not being a very good soldier, always doing things wrong and not having much courage, not having much confidence. And there's one particular training exercise where they were to push through enemy lines and then regroup. And as the soldiers were re regrouping, uh, my friend, the officer, gave the command for everyone to clean their weapon. And this dud of a private just stood there not knowing what to do. And at first he thought, well, if I yell a little bit louder at him, call him some more names, that will motivate him to do what he's supposed to be doing right now. But for whatever reason, in that moment, he didn't do that. He worked his way over to this soldier and he said, what's going on? Do you need any help? And the private said, I don't know how to clean my weapon. It's his own fault. He could have learned how to do that very easily. He could have asked for help at another time. But what this officer did was he said, uh, later that night, as they went back to their barracks, he sat by his side and showed him how to break down his weapon and how to clean his weapon. You see, it took a compassionate response, a response of grace. It took that moment of looking at the private, feeling what he might be feeling, and acting on his behalf to make a difference. As he was telling me this story, he concluded this way. The officer said that the cornerstone of the Christian life is remembering who we are. Remembering the love and grace and mercy extended to us by Jesus. He looks, he feels, he acts. And then in turn, extending it to people, the people that God has entrusted to us. At work, at home, or in the muddy trenches of Fort Pickett. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that in Christ we know you see us, that you have visited us, that you have looked intently on us, and that you haven't turned your face away, but that you have been moved with compassion, and then you have acted on our behalf. Father, I pray for all of us today in deeper ways to feel and remember the depths you've gone to on the cross and in your victory over death and your resurrection. And inspired by that very spirit of resurrection, that we would live such lives before the watching world. We pray that you would do this work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.